Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lance. It is our goal to build up believers and reach out with God's truth to all people. Now here's today's message with Pastor Michael. We're continuing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts, and this morning we're in Acts 19. So take your Bible, if you would, open it to the book of Acts. you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. You want... Chapter 19, we'll be looking at verses 8 through 20. We're looking at a message called Kingdoms in Conflict. Kingdoms in Conflict. Acts 19, verse 8. Bow one more time with me. Father, thank you for each precious person that has come into this place today. Thank you that we are part of the kingdom of your beloved Son. If we're Christians today, we've crossed over from death to life. And we're so grateful. Yet we know there is another kingdom and there is a God of this world, a God of this age with a small g and he, he has people marching to his drum and he's a deceiver and a liar and a murderer. And Lord, we need to be aware that there is a spiritual battle but the battle belongs to the Lord. Thank you that you've given us armor that we can clothe ourselves with and really the armor is you. It's you covering your church, your bride. So Lord, as we enter into this time we're going to look at a group of people who come clean, who have been practicing the occult and sorcery and dominated really by the kingdom of darkness. I pray that we would have hope today as we look at that, well, the way the kingdom of light can penetrate the darkness. And I pray you'd be setting people more and more free today. We lay this time at your feet and pray you guide us by your Holy Spirit and that we would have ears to hear of what you would say to us. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. Now, last week, uh, when we were together, we talked about a message called the next step. And we looked at uh, the Apostle Paul taking an interim step, and he had taken a Nazarite vow, and he went deeper with God for that season. We looked at a man called Apollos. He was a very powerful man in the scriptures, but didn't really understand the fullness of the gospel. Then we saw Paul come through the upper country, uh, come to Ephesus, and meet a group of disciples, quote-unquote, who had yet, yet not been born again. And Paul preached to them, and they were baptized in the name of Jesus, and they manifested that reality by speaking in tongues and prophesying. And so now Paul is going to move back to the synagogue in Ephesus, and this is something that he promised to do. And before we go to the text, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Ephesus, and I'm going to give you more next Sunday. I'll give you some pictures of excavations and uh, show you some of the ruins of Ephesus. But Ephesus was one of those churches in Asia Minor, a very major area. But if you were to break down Ephesus on the Aegean Sea, very famous for its port and so forth, very um, active economy and very, very influential place, one of the things that you would note about Ephesus is that its major marker, its center of town, was a statue, a temple that was dedicated to the Greek goddess Artemis. Her Roman name is Diana. They've dug up uh, little statues of her, and we're going to see the conflict between Paul and the silversmiths next Sunday and see how that all worked out. But, but for now, you need to know that Artemis was a multi-breasted um, figure of, of, the, of an ancient goddess. She, when you see the image of her, she's got all these kind of bubble things on the front. Some say it's a fertility sign. Some say it's eggs. But that's what she was known for. She was the, the patroness of, of love and the goddess of the hunt. And, and as a matter of fact, they have dug up ruins and they found an area called the Pratanian, the Pratanian, 
kind of town hall housed the sacred fire of Ephesus and they found coins minted from this time and the coin said, in Artemis or in Diana we trust. That's what this area was about. It was about this goddess who uh, her image allegedly came down from heaven and she was tied to all this Greek mythology. And one of the things that was happening in Ephesus was a strong influence of magic, a strong influence of sorcery. When I say magic, I'm not talking about sleight of hand magic known by a big word called prestidigitation. That is, someone just can fool you with sleight of hand. That's not the kind of magic we're talking about. The magic here we're talking about is a synonym for sorcery. And sorcery includes dabbling in the hidden world, dabbling with the occult. Occult means that which is hidden or occluded. That's where the word occult comes from. It has this idea of people trying to go behind the veil where they're not supposed to go to find out information. And so people sometimes go into seances and they call upon the dead or they try to get information from guiding spirits and so forth. This is big in the New Age movement right now, self-realization and all this stuff. And people, as a matter of fact, are trying to mingle together the New Age with Christianity. And the two do not go together. They just don't. God does not want his people dabbling in that area. If you read Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18, you might want to write that down for your notes. God says those things, witchcraft, sorcery, mediums, uh, you know, you see these programs with ghost chasers and all this stuff is forbidden to his people. He does not want us messing with it because when you open the door to that kind of stuff, you don't know what's going to happen. I have a book right here on the front row. I didn't bring it up to show it to you. But it's an encyclopedia of New Age beliefs. There's a whole section in that book on people who are messing with Ouija boards. I don't know if you knew this, but Parker Brothers bought the patent for the Ouija board. But the Ouija board was uh, around a long time ago. And there were different devices where people would call upon the spirits to guide them to information, which God said was off limits. And I can show you different cases in my book and other case files where Ouija boards became a doorway for pe- people to be spiritly, spirit-possessed or demonically possessed or at least be under some weird oppression. There are story after story of people saying weird things began to happen in their house, began to happen in their life. People said they started to hear voices. People said they started to even have suicidal thoughts after messing with this stuff. The devil is a liar and a murderer. And he hides behind even things that are called games, quote unquote, sold by Parker Brothers. And I think they're just doing it because of the profit and I, and I read a statistic, this was from years ago, that the Ouija board was second in popularity only to Monopoly, if you can believe that. So people are still messing with it today. Certainly some people can mess with it and nothing bad happens, I know that. But it can become a doorway. And Ephesus was a place dominated by sorcery, spirits, that kind of thing. One writer puts it this way, he says, Ephesus became a collecting place for superstition and the dark arts. A cesspool of the occult. It was a waterhole for every kind of magician, witch, clairvoyant, and criminal. Con artists, murderers, and perverts all found the climate of Ephesus unusually agreeable. The city was the dark castle of Asia Minor, close quote. This was the place that Paul came. And Paul loved to go into cities that had these kinds of situations, these ancient cities with all these superstitions and the occult because he knew that people needed to be set free. 
And what we know from the history of the city is that people were living under all kinds of oppression. They were fearful of spirits, of curses. And, and there were people, religious charlatans and exorcists, professional exorcists, that were making money hand over fist because they alleged that they could deliver people from this kind of stuff. And so if people had opened the door, then these people would come to the rescue and they would make big bucks. Uh, whether they were successful or not, uh, the history says they were paid for their services and people were freaked out by all this kind of stuff. What's going to happen to me in the future? Am I under a curse? Is there some sort of spirit in my life dominating my life? And here's where Paul has gone. This is Acts 19. Look at verse 8 with me. And he's gone back now to the synagogue because that was always Paul's first point of contact in a city where there was a, a Jewish population. Acts 19, verse 8, kingdoms in conflict. Read along with me. And he, that's Paul, entered the synagogue and he continued speaking out boldly for three months. He was reasoning, literally the word there is dialoguing, and persuading them about the kingdom of God. I want you to notice that Luke says that Paul's message was the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that Satan is the God of this age. He has a kingdom, God has a kingdom. And the two kingdoms are in conflict. One is a kingdom of darkness. One is a kingdom of light. Now, God's kingdom, of course, is much more powerful. Don't think that Satan is God's equal on the evil side. He is not. He is simply a fallen angel, but he's still certainly a powerful being. And he masquerades himself as an angel of light. As a, as, as a matter of fact, we need to understand that his, his way of getting into people's lives is with the promise of something positive. He doesn't come with his ID card and say, hello, I'm Lucifer. I've come to mess up your life and take you to hell. It's not what he does. He masquerades as something positive and something good. And then people get into it and then they find that they are in a trap. And here's Paul. He's gone in and he's reasoning. Now write down for your notes, 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 through 5. Uh, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthian church, he said that we are tearing down strongholds literally fortresses, it could be translated, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul gave us the image that people are in these fortresses of falsehood. They have been deceived and they find themselves, if something looked promising, but now they're in a prison cell. They're in a fortress that needs to be demolished. And the fortresses come down by one thing. Of course, the power of the Holy Spirit. But what defeats a fortress of falsehood or deception is the truth. If you're a note taker, please write that down. It is the truth that sets people free. Now, sometimes when, it, when someone's in a fortress of deception or falsehood, it's sometimes truth little by little. You know, maybe they've, they've been there for years. Maybe you're dealing with a family member who needs to be brought out a little by little, truth upon truth. Uh, you can't necessarily do that with somebody in one sitting. The gospel has power, you know what I'm saying, but sometimes if someone's been steeped in uh, false ideas, you have to give them truth little by little to bring them out of that fortress of falsehood. In Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, we have the famous armor of God. Paul wrote that to the church at Ephesus. So why did he write the, about the armor of God to the church at Ephesus? Because the history of the city was, it was very much demonically influenced. And Paul said, put on the full armor of God that you may take your stand against what? The schemes of the devil. He does have schemes or methods. That's the Greek word methodia, where we get method or methodology. He has schemes. Therefore, in light of that, put on the full armor of God that you might take your stand. 
And so Paul goes into the synagogue and he is reasoning, dialoguing, and he is even, look at verse 8, persuading. There is a place for persuasion. Why? Because we want to persuade people to get out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. So sometimes in evangelism, I find myself trying to persuade people. Now look, I cannot win somebody into the kingdom in the sense that I don't convert their soul. The Holy Spirit does that. But I certainly can present the gospel as well as I can. Uh, I can present it with clarity. I know it has power. God's going to convert the soul. That person has to bow, obviously, to God's will. But there is a place for persuasion. And God wants us to evangelize. I I was uh, at a recent Bible study And we studied the passage that ended with this verse, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. So we're at a restaurant, and um, I was feeling a tug to invite a father and a daughter that were sitting in the restaurant. And uh, it just, you know, the outward didn't look like there was going to be reception, or at least that was in my mind. And so I decided, uh, I I had borrowed a church card from somebody and decided, no, I'm just going to pray for them. So I got into my car, and I was going to leave, and then God brought the verse of the, the last verse of the Bible study right to my mind. I've not given you a spirit of fear, but of what? Power, love, and a sound mind. Is that just a Bible study you did, or do you believe that, Michael? <laughs> Don't you hate when that happens? I was just gonna, Lord, I was just going to drive away. I, it was just a Bible study. <laughs> so I kept my car running, just in case I had to make a quick get- getaway. <laughs> Went back into the restaurant, invited uh, the dad and the daughter. Walking back to my car, uh, another gentleman who works at the restaurant walked out. Hey, how you doing? We kind of knew each other. He knows my son. And uh, for the next 15 minutes on his break, I got a chance to preach the gospel to him. And uh, he's pretty close to coming to know Christ. I would have missed that opportunity had I wimped out and said, I'm just going to pray for those people. Look, there are times when it's appropriate just to pray. But you know what? If we believe that the gospel is going to help someone get into the kingdom, move from darkness to light, we ought to be about the business of persuasion. Amen? If you believe the gospel, then passion should accompany your life in terms of your everyday life. And look, I face the same fears and inadequacies as we all do. But you know what? Sometimes when you take that step of faith, um, God, I think always when you take a step of faith, God's going to meet you there in some way. So when some, verse 9, Paul had been going on for three months, verse 8, verse 9 says, when some were becoming hardened and, notice the next word, disobedient. Notice how far they took this, speaking evil of the way. The way is capitalized. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one is coming to the Father except through me. But some people, not only were they hardened and disobedient, but they began to speak evil of the way before the multitude. Paul had three months, had a shot at these people in the synagogue. He withdrew from them and took away the disciples. Let's stop for a second and notice the word some in verse 9. Not all, but some were becoming hardened and disobedient. It's interesting to me that the word disobedient is used of people who reject the gospel in verse 9. Now, you may not think of it in this way. You may think, well, is this word really appropriate to rejection of the gospel? It actually is. Write down 2, Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. It says, God will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 1 Peter 4, 17 says, It is time for judgment to begin within the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those 
who do not obey the gospel. Here's the point. These people listened for three months and they began to become calloused or hardened and they were disobedient to the gospel. You see, in America, folks, it is not necessarily a lack of knowledge that's the problem. It is a lack of willingness to bow the knee to Christ. And so there is, it sh- this should be included in your theology. There are going to be people who stand before God and the reason that they are not going to spend eternity with the Lord is they disobeyed the gospel. In other words, they had the knowledge, but they would not submit their lives to it. There's a lot of Americans in this situation right now. They understand that Jesus died on the cross. They understand the resurrection. They understand that you've got to place your faith in Christ and he might expect you to make some adjustments in your life and he would want to work on the inside. And frankly, they are just at a place where they are disobedient to the gospel. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's a lack of willingness. No, I don't want to walk with Christ. No, I don't want to follow him. And some people on that day, sadly, are going to be in that camp. Now, they became hardened. The word hardened is seen often in the scriptures. Do you remember when Jesus told the parable of the sower or the soils, and he said that some of the seed falls by uh, the roadside, and it's trampled underfoot. Have you ever seen a, a piece of ground? It's, it's dirt, but it's been walked over so much, it's become like cement. Well, Jesus says in this parable that some of people's hearts become so hardened, hard-packed, by traveling over it over and over again, that the seed doesn't even penetrate at all. And then he finished the image by saying, and the birds come, and remember, and they grab the seed, and and, uh, Jesus said that the birds in this image are Satan. That when the seed deflects off a hardened heart, Satan comes by and snatches what was heard so that there's no fruit in it. And these people are an image of that. They had become hardened and they got so hard about the gospel that they obviously began to speak evil of it as well, which does happen in some people's cases. They certainly uh, wouldn't obey the gospel but, but made it worse by speaking against Jesus and Christianity. So Paul withdrew. Look at the middle of verse 9. He, he withdrew from them. That would be those naysayers. He took away the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, the school of Tyrannus apparently was a school of philosophy, and Tyrannus is an elongated form of the idea of a tyrant. Now, can you imagine mom or dad naming their little one tyrant? And some of you parents are saying, oh yeah, I can definitely understand that. But imagine your little baby comes out, you know, you go, 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 you know, so wonderful. What should we call him? Tyrant. Let's call Now, I can imagine that there would be some stretches of parenting when you maybe nicknamed your child Tyrannus, okay? But I think it's possible that this teacher of philosophy in this school that he had was nicknamed Tyrant by his students. And uh, if you've ever had a tough teacher or a tough boss, I think you're understanding where this may have come from. He's a tyrant, man. He wants us to write three papers this week and all that stuff. And so it was the school of the tyrant, (laughs) Now, Paul was no tyrant, but he certainly went in there and he used this as a makeshift Bible college. And so into it, he went. Why did Tyrannus make it available? He may have been a Christian sympathizer. Tyrannus may have become a Christian. And so he decided, well, Paul's getting heat in the synagogue. We'll rent out the school to him. Now, 
church buildings officially did not come along until a couple centuries later, but this is kind of the first glimpse of a rented building, if you will, where church was going on, where Bible studies were going on. And so here's what happened in the schedule at Ephesus. People worked from 7 to 11 a.m., and they took a break from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Some of you are saying, that is my work schedule. That's no problem at all. <laughs> Some of you may need to make a confession later. Well, and then, so what would happen is 11 to 4, people would take naps, eat lunch, kick back. They would go back to work from 4 to 9 at night. So from 11 to 4, Paul probably stepped into this gap where the school was probably not having activity, and he took the time when people would normally rest from work or rest up to go back to work, or time for a siesta, and he, te- he taught for five hours in the middle of the day. Now the Apostle Paul's schedule was crazy for a couple of years. He worked making tents, and then he taught, uh, called this a two-year Bible college for five hours every day reasoning with these people because he wanted to ground them in the truth because he knew the culture they lived in and he knew how many influences they had coming at them uh, all the time. And so he wanted to ground them in the truth of God. Go to Acts chapter 20. Look at verse 26 with me. Paul's addressing the elders of the Ephesian church, so the leaders of this church that he planted. And here's what he writes to them. I think there's two reasons why Paul kept this crazy schedule. One, he didn't want to be lumped in with the religious charlatans who were doing what they were doing for money. And two, he wanted to ground these people in the truth. He says, therefore, Acts twenty twenty six, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, Acts twenty twenty eight, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Notice Paul's passion. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now you've heard the phrase, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you know that that is not found in the Gospels? That's... This is the only place where this statement is found. It was Paul quoting Jesus, but it's found in Acts 20, verse 35. I think Paul kept the crazy schedule because he did not want to be lumped in with the religious charlatan of his days. And sometimes when people are surfing channels and they see representations of quote-unquote Christianity, they sometimes tend to lump these things together. Certainly there are good programs on television, solid teachers, But there are other things, if you're channel surfing, representations, quote-unquote, of Christianity, which I don't want to be lumped in with, frankly, as a pastor, because I don't think they represent what Jesus is all about. I think sometimes they are about manipulation and ripping people off, and I don't want to be lumped in with that. So um, we want to be people of integrity, and, and this took place, Acts 19, verse 10, for two years. So Paul was in that school of Tyrannus, Acts 19, 10, For two years there in Ephesus, so that all who lived in Asia 
and this is Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Isn't it amazing? Luke says, as Paul discipled people, all of Asia Minor began to hear the gospel. You know, there's a principle here. Let me share it quickly with you. When you spend your time as a teacher making disciples, they are going to impact their world. If you make ministry about shallow, surfacey stuff, then that, those are the Christians you're going to send out into the world. They're going to go back to their workplace, their homes, the regions that they live, and they're going to be shallow believers. If you would like to listen to this message, or if you would like more information about the ministry of Living Truth, please visit our website at livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org. Well, in Acts 19, verses 8 through 20, I want to focus in on the story of the seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who was, uh, who were doing this, and what they were doing is they were going about, and they were Jewish exorcists. And so they encountered a case, and the evil spirit responded to them and said to them, I recognize Jesus, I know about Paul, but who are you? This is interesting. An evil spirit knew about Jesus, and of course we see this all over the New Testament. Uh, What do we have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? The demons recognized who Jesus was before the people did, which is quite interesting and ironic. But the evil spirit knew about Jesus, knew about Paul. But (laughs) the question is, who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit uh, was, was the evil spirit, leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I I heard recently a question that was asked about this and basically the question was, okay, well, if they were Jewish exorcists and they were using the name of Jesus, which verse 13 of Acts 19 does tell us, these were Jewish exorcists, they went to a place, place to place, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you, Here's the key, by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Hey, this Paul has power. Let's copy him. But they didn't have a personal connection with Jesus. I take it as they didn't have the power of Jesus. They were just simply trying to use his name. Remember that the name of Jesus was very common in the first century. And there's another Jesus in another gospel. Now, they were trying to appeal or adjure by the name of the Jesus that Paul preached, so that's of course the genuine Jesus, but you can use the name of Jesus, I suppose, in some religious attempt to do something. And of course, people use his name in a, um, let's put it lightly, in a not so positive way all the time, and take his name in vain all the time. But here they try to be doing, they appear to be trying to do something religious, but they don't seem to have a connection to Jesus. That, That seems to be undoubted that they don't know the Lord. And so when they try to, to invoke the name of Jesus in this particular case, the spirit caused the man, you know, demon possession, of course, and overpowered the man or empowered the man, as it were. And they got beat up because uh, they didn't know Jesus. <laughs> 